You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 192 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, and I am your host for today. We're back. I guess we were kind of back three weeks ago, but now we're actually back, and we should have episodes now until the end of the semester, unless something happens. Uh, Joining me today, uh, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? You've already started school. Yeah, we are uh, almost two and a half weeks in now. By the time this drops, we'll be three weeks in. It's a new calendar that has us ending the fall semester before Thanksgiving, so we're trying something new. Uh, my my impression so far of this new calendar is, gum, it's hot for a long time this semester. Oh, yeah, but the, that we, the, those two weeks between the end of the semester and Thanksgiving, it's impossible to get the students to care about anything. Yeah, yeah. That turkey coma lasts all the way all the way till January. <laughs> uh, David Grubbs, who is a uh, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David, um, have you guys started yet? We start Monday. Okay, so that's the day before this actually airs. Yes. Mm-hmm. This semester we're recording on Tuesdays, and then they drop the following Tuesday. So anything we say, I guess, will be a week too early because we start tomorrow. So by the time you hear this, we'll have been in session for six days. Hmm. I don't know. This is this can't be interesting to anybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, our topic today is uh, the so-called terrible sonnets of Gerard Manley Hopkins, and they're terrible not necessarily because they're bad written, badly written, although um, formally speaking, they are very, very bad sonnets. Um, instead, they're they're called the terrible sonnets because their subject matter is uh, terror in some sense. They're, they're, they're some of the last poems Hopkins wrote, and, uh, well, their, their subject matter is pretty bleak. Um, David, I would like you, if you don't mind, to tell us a little bit about who Hopkins was and, and what place the terrible sonnets have in his poetic career. Right. Uh, I, alas, have no Hopkins biography on my shelf, so I'm relying on um, what the handy Norton can give us. So but I will distill that. Um, He lived uh, 1844 to 1889. So uh, I want to say he was not quite 45 when he died. So we're talking about a fairly uh, fairly young man um, whose whose work we're looking at. Uh, English, an English poet, uh, a Victorian poet, Though uh, his poetry wasn't published, uh, w- wasn't available to the public until 1918 when his friend Robert Bridges took it on, took it on himself to um, publish uh, what poetry he had of, of his friend uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, the reason why um, only, I think, a few were published in his lifetime is uh, that Hopkins had this weird kind of conflicted relationship with his poetry, which um, I'll have to return to in a bit. Uh, He got a very good education. Uh, He was at Oxford um, at the time that Matthew Arnold was there. So, you know, Christian humanist bingo. (laughs) Uh, But that was also the time when the Oxford movement was sweeping through. Uh, People like... uh, John Henry Newman um, were were enormously influential, um, and at, at, at this point, um, Newman had con- had actually converted from um, ever higher and higher and higher versions of Anglicanism into just being a Roman Catholic. 
He just he just keeps ascending. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the, the 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 eternal ascent of John Henry Newman. Um, anyways, Newman eventually became something of a uh, uh, something of a mentor to Gerard Manley Hopkins, who himself became a higher and higher and higher Anglican, and eventually converted to Catholicism. This ended up becoming a a, a huge issue, a huge of of division between. Uh, him and his family, which um, some of this poetry gets into. Uh, his family were not happy with the fact that he converted to Catholicism. They were less happy that he decided to become a Roman Catholic priest, and they were most unhappy of all that he decided to become a Jesuit Roman Catholic priest. Um, it's like he went straight to Hydra. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Jesuits, for, for our listeners who, who don't know, and I'm sure it's very few of you, uh, the Jesuits actually formed just to destroy Protestantism. <laughs> so, so it's like as hostile to Protestants as you can get and be kept. Now I don't know if if they were still hostile in the 19th century, but well, I, 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 I don't I don't know about I don't know about that. But there was there was definitely a sense that Jesuits were there to infiltrate Protestant England and work at a reconversion of their culture, kind of on the down low from the inside. And so, you know, since. You know, since the age of King James, um, Jesuits have had uh, kind of a rep in England. Anyway, so Gerard Manley Hopkins becomes a Jesuit. He he'd always been interested in poetry. He'd enjoyed it, um, but he also had this ascetic streak, which made him feel that, in some sense, his poetry was perhaps a a luxury that he was supposed to give up along with the others. So um, when he uh, entered the Jesuit order, he burned uh, a lot of the poetry that he had um, because he thought this was a thing that I need to give up. Later on, he was persuaded um, actually by uh, uh, those who were over, uh, those who were in authority over him to take up poetry again um, uh, for, for them, <laughs> which, which he did. But there was still this um, uh, a real uh, ambivalence that he had towards his poetry, uh, towards uh, towards letting other people know about it. It seemed like presenting his poetry to an audience seemed egotistic, but at the same time, a poet needs to be heard. <laughs> so. Anyway, this 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 was the difficulty he lived with, and when he died, um, it was with uh, uh, a lot of his stuff burnt, um, a lot of his stuff, uh, some of his stuff in the hands of of the few people that he'd shared it with, um, but with no intention that it ever go public. Um, but as I said, his uh, his friend Robert Bridges, who was also a poet, in fact, poet laureate for a while, um, his friend Robert Bridges took it took it upon himself to. Um, give a reputation to this poet he thought deserved it. On the other hand, Bridges said some pretty nasty things about Hopkins's poetry, and in particular, um, the the first poem in, in basically any collection of Hopkins is this very long, very very difficult poem called "The Wreck of the Deutschland." Yeah, and uh, Bridges is just um, really really dismissive of it, and it seems like. The only reason he even included it is that he, he, I think he felt like Hopkins would have been upset if he hadn't. Am well, I? Do you think I'm misreading that, David? Well, for one thing, I, I haven't read I haven't read the Bridges on Wreck of the Deutschland, but I do know that Wreck of the Deutschland was actually um, the piece of poetry that Hopkins Jesuit um, superiors commissioned him to write for an occasion. Hmm. Um, and though it was submitted to pub for publication and accepted by a, Je uh, by a Jesuit periodical, they didn't actually print it. So it... It is very long and almost yeah. impossibly difficult. Like for a pre-modernist poem, it, it is about as difficult as it comes. Right. It, I, I well, spent most of an afternoon reading it one day and I, I still don't know how much of it I really understood. Right. <laughs> I, I, I took a stab at it last night and said, yeah, we're not talking about that one, so I give up. <laughs> it's an important um, poem for Hopkins, because, I mean, it really prefigures yeah. a lot of the things he talks about throughout mm -hmm. his, his career. But it is, 
if if you're reading Hopkins and and you get like the Penguin poems and mm-hmm. prose, which is what I have, uh, don't start with the Wreck of the Deutschland. Skip it and come back to it. Because yeah. yeah, if that's your first Hopkins, you're never going to make it through. Yeah, fall fall in love with uh, fall in love with God's grandeur first, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then come back. Um, maybe that's why Robert Bridges was more dismissive of it because it was actually ordered for an occasion. Maybe he he just didn't feel that it was as strongly representative of what Hopkins was best at as his more personal verse was. I I, I don't know, but I haven't read those comments. Uh, he does some really interesting things in his poetry uh, with with rhythm. He created a thing that he called sprung rhythm, um, in which he isn't, uh, he, in which the meter doesn't work on the basis of counting the total syllables in a line. It's just that there's a certain number of strong, there's a certain number of stresses in a line, and there might be a number of weak stresses between those, but the number of strong stresses is always set. Um, and in order to indicate that to you, he would put accents over syllables where you might not be inclined to make the stress. Um, <laughs> to, to put it, uh, to put it lightly. Yeah, just to right, kind of hold your right. hand. Uh, I don't necessarily understand all that's going on there. Um, one of the things that I've uh, heard is, uh, well, one of the things that the, the Norton says is that uh, he learned Old English, and he he liked old the the meter of Old English poetry, which does have um, interesting metrics. And so maybe he was trying to accomplish something with a similar effect. It's not exactly the same kind of thing as Old English metrics, but um, it might bear the same relationship to Old English metrics that Edmund Spencer's not Middle English has to Middle English. That, that's um, so interesting to me, David. I hadn't heard that because I, I think of Hopkins as kind of inventing modernism. But, I mean, mm-hmm. th- there's not a conflict between inventing modernism and, like, renovating a former form. I mean, that that's just that yeah. that's what modernism does. Well, I mean, you know, again, I'm just, you know, Norton. Thank you, Norton. Um, <laughs> one of the things that it mentions is that often... Uh, Hopkins is lumped in with modern poets because he wasn't published till 1918. So he was being read in the context of the 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 the, the poets um, that we associate with that that kind of high modernism. But he wasn't writing them in that period, and he's writing sonnets. They are distinctly sonnets. Um, maybe they're not perfect sonnets in terms of the meter that we expect, but in terms of rhyme schemes, all the ones that we're looking at today are neatly Petrarchan um, in terms of their structure and rhyme schemes. Um, He's interested in old English. Uh, He's uh, there's, I mean, and we'll get into this. There's lots of echoes. I think of older things that are in this. So while he may come off as very modern, um, the resources that he's drawing on are not necessarily the same, the same ones that the high, the poets of high modernism are drawing out of their moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, you're, you're right. I mean, he, it's not right to treat him as one with T.S. Eliot or something like that. No, but he obviously so clearly doesn't belong with Tennyson or, or you know, <laughs> right, any of the right. other people we think of as the great poets of the Victorian era, even Matthew Arnold. Mm-hmm. Who, who I think um, I think God's grandeur is rather clearly a, a response to Dover Beach, but um, but mm-hmm. I, he doesn't really belong there. He's he's too interested in the sounds of words. His mm-hmm. um his his poetry feels like somebody trying to grab onto a fish to me. Like like the <laughs> he, he loves these like repeated W sounds. This this, this mm-hmm. W alliteration, and it, it's just so slippery. It's so hard to read out loud. And yet, mm-hmm. it's so rewarding to read it out loud because the sounds of the words are, in some sense, uh, in, at least in some poems, more important than the meaning of what he's trying to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. you fall in love with the sensory effect, which is um, one of the things that I uh, uh, did. We want to talk about his whole in inscape um, and in stress. In- Inscape and stress thing. We should probably at least mention it briefly. I mean, you said sprung rhythm. That's the one thing he's famous for. And then inscape and in stress mm-hmm. are the, the other, other thing. And I can never remember which one is which, but they're very closely related concepts. 
well, I just reviewed this, so I can clarify. Um, <laughs> Inscape is kind of the the inward distinctness of a thing that each thing has this um, has this uh, unique individuality um, within itself that it also, in some way, um, communicates. Um, the, le- the, the word that he uses in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, as Kingfisher's Catch Fire, that, that particular poem, uh, he says that, um, that things selve. Um, yeah. they, they, yeah. they, they, they do themselves. Um, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is, it's, it's a, it's a metaphysical conceit. He doesn't see the world around him as this passive substance that his, that his outreaching senses, um, can immediately turn into objects. Um, he treats other things as acting on him. They're, they're selving at him and he needs to be receptive in a particular kind of way in order to understand that uniquely interesting um, and even uh, mystically important unique self. And that's the in-stress side of it. In-stress is, is kind of the, the, the outreaching of, uh, of the observer to, to kind of appreciate this thing's distinctiveness in the way that it... Um, exists in the world and a lot of that is the, is that sensory matter so he isn't thinking of his senses in this kind of scientific sense here are all of these passive, thi- passive things and I with my instrumental senses will weigh and measure etc but rather my senses are helping to build a bridge of communication mm-hmm. um, it's neat stuff I think um, anyway so uh, anyway, his his love of the sound and all those kinds of things. He uh, uh, he says that his poetry uh, is attempting to capture that sense of the thing that's selving, so that it's kind of recapitulating that inscape in stress relationship. So that as you read the poet, you're getting to know the thing that the poem is about through not just the the meaning of the words, but the sound too. Nathan, anything to add to uh, to our little history of Hopkins there? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I'll, I'll only add that, uh, you know, part of what makes these poems, you know, so difficult to read, and I've actually not read uh, the Deutschland poem. Uh, I'll just take your word for it, honestly, because even his sonnets twist me in a knot. Uh, <laughs> is that, you know, as David was saying, uh, there are times you have to read a passage in my case, because I'm, I'm apparently just not as smart as some, I have to read it four or five times before mm-hmm. I figure out where the verb is. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. and, and then I discover that, you know, he's used and, well, he's used a word that I think of as an adjective as the sentence's main verb. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, you know, I guess I, in some sense, you know, he's, he's pre- prefiguring certain kinds of internet lingo there. Uh, I, I I wouldn't have too much of a problem. Imagine him writing a poem about adulting. Somebody needs to uh, somebody needs to make a meme with Hopkins, and it says, "Dude, do you even inscape?" <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot! Nice. One other, one other thing to add about the terrible sonnets in particular: they're mm-hmm. written when he is very unhappily teaching at Trinity College in Ireland, which at the oh, time, yeah. anyway, is just a complete pit. He feels out of place. He was apparently really, really bad in the classroom. He was very short. He was like five foot five, very boyish. I don't, I don't think the students respected him. Um, in Frederick Buechner's book, um, uh, "Say Say What We Feel, Not What We Ought to this, Say." I think it's called "Say What We Feel, Not What We Ought to Think" or something. He 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 talks about this, and he he talks about Hopkins writing some of these poems on blue books during final exams. Like while the <laughs> students are taking a final exam, he's writing these poems and and a couple others in a blue book, and then like with the knowledge that he's going to have to grade eighteen hundred final exams, and I think that's the number. I think he did eighteen hundred a year. Oh my God! <laughs> so, like th- these terrible sonnets are coming from kind of who he is. We talked about his conflicts and his ambivalence, his mm-hmm. desire for success, his his frustration that he wasn't successful, 
and then his feeling that maybe he shouldn't even be looking for success. But they're also coming from very, um, very direct material experiences that he's going through. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's start uh, going through them. And there is, I, I think, an accepted order of Hopkins's poetry, but maybe not. So we're going to go through them in the order they appear in the Penguin poems and prose. All of these are available online. You should probably at least read through them before um, before you continue the discussion. It, you can probably mm-hmm. get through them in an hour or so if you pay if you pay close attention. So um, or, or two hours if you read like me, <laughs> Nathan. Let's start with. Um, Carry and Comfort, which I believe is the only one of these that has a name beyond just the first uh, line of the poem. So mm-hmm. what's happening here in Carry and Comfort? Well, in Carry and Comfort, uh, it is a, a what I would call a sonnet of lament. Uh, it is a cry out to God, although, like I said, I had to read it a couple times before I could figure that much out. And it is borrowing images from Psalm 22. It's borrowing phrases from the book of Job. Um, and really, I mean, you know, uh, you also get things from, you know, other parts of the old Testament as well, but, uh, it is this lament and this question that, you know, as I said, has roots in that question that Job poses to God, you know, uh, and, you know, ironically sort of appropriating Psalm eight, uh, you know, what is man, that you follow him around waiting for him to slip up so that you can crush him like a bug, my paraphrase. Um, <laughs> but we get these wonderful images uh, that I didn't know were images because I couldn't figure out what were verbs and what were nouns. <laughs> um, I'm serious, guys. I, give, I mean, us a, yeah. give us an example, Nathan. Will you, will you, read, us, will you read us a line that, that, that twists you around like that? I mean, I'm, I, I'm not I, doubting I, that it happens. I just want our listeners I, to have a sense I, of I, I'll read you the passage that, give, that gave me fits. Okay, go but, for it. Ah, but oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring world right foot rock? Lay a lion limb against me. Scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones. And fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heaped, heaped there. Me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Now, when I read a <laughs> sentence and I see the word rude, my eye sees an adjective. Here's a, here it's an adverb. When I see rock at the end of a sentence, I think it's probably going to be a noun, maybe the object of a verb, maybe an indirect object. Who knows? Here it's the main verb. Uh, it I, it really did. I mean, I I had to look at a few uh, treatments of this poem in Google Books before I found someone polite enough to reorganize the words in subject verb object order so that I could read the blasted thing. <laughs> but once you've got it, it's really quite good. I mean, you know, uh the image here is not God stomping on, you know, someone in wrath. It's not even God stepping on someone in indifference, but it's rocking the right foot against them. You know, it's uh just gradually crushing. Uh it is, you know, laying a lion limb against me, you know, the the image of, you know, the devouring beast. Uh, and then, you know, scan with darksome devouring eyes, my bruised bones. Again, it's that image that, you know, obviously, obviously is an echo of Job of, you know, God, not only being indifferent to the human being, but actively pursuing and tormenting the human being. And the poem ends with, you know, uh, this poetic sentence. Um, and let me find the beginning of the sentence. Cause that's also not, uh, entirely easy. <laughs> That night, that year of now done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with my God, my God. And so you get that repetition of my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, Christ from the cross, Psalm 22. Uh, But it is set in, you know, not a scene of enemies destroying, but of God destroying. So, you know, this carrying comfort, uh, you know, is precisely what's denied to him. He doesn't even get to be the dead, dead body for the vultures to devour because God isn't even done with his bones yet. Um, like I said, I mean, once I, once I finally struggled through this thing, uh, and started to doubt whether I should be an English professor anymore, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but man, oh man, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know what it was about this poem that gave me such fits. I mean, David, David, what else do you want to bring up? Out I mean, of this and, and just just before we move over to David, this is the famous one. Like, yep. like when people read the when people assign the terrible sonnets and like uh, uh, 
freshman comp class. This is the one they sign. Like the other ones are even more elliptical, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, and see, of the of the sequence, this one gave me the most problems. Did you read it first? I did. I, I wonder if if he, he's his language is one you have to enter into and kind of. Yeah, and I haven't studied any Hopkins for years, so I mean that might just be. I, I it took me a while to get back up to, you know, proto modernist speed. Carry and Comfort <laughs> is the one that is that is anthologized in like freshman textbooks. So, David, what else do you want to bring forth? Yeah, what's well, the thing that terrifies them and convince them convinces them that poetry is a secret code that only the initiate may, you know? Oh man, and, uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> which, I was definitely on the outside looking in on this one. <laughs> which you know, given how private this poetry is, I, d- I don't necessarily want to say, "Oh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, you have failed to communicate," because it's not entirely clear that he's always attempting to, to communicate to someone mm-hmm. else. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, 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 I love it. Um, th- this is, this is when, um, I, I think in some way the difficulty of the poem is like the wrestling with God, that the last verse, um, lays out, uh, kind of, uh, uh, that, that image of wrestling with God that's, a, that's in the last, in the last line, mm-hmm. um, that wrestling with the poem, um, for me is, 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 is similar to that in a, in a certain kind of way. The Stanley but, Fish argument, right? Yeah, kind of. And well, and, and also, uh, also frankly, the Gerard Manley Hopkins argument that he's writing poetry in order to get you inside of the experience so that you understand it, mm-hmm. not to, not to just tell you it, you know? Um, but I, I love thy ring world, right foot ring world. Mm-hmm. What on earth? It's an adjective. That's right? ring with a W. <laughs> ring with yeah. a, like 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 you would ring a rag, right? So your right foot is one that could ring the world like a rag. And mm-hmm. why are you rocking it rudely on me? Right, but not rudely, <laughs> rude. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> by by the way, David, I got to tell a quick story about this. Mm. When I first couldn't decipher this, I made the mistake of typing in rude as a verb, and I got about 18 different lists of rude verbs on the internet. Nice. (laughs) Excellent. I'm like, okay, there must be some archaic use of rude that was originally a verb before it became an adjective that I'm just not aware of. You found some very up-to-date rude verbs. (laughs) Yes, I did. Lists of them. Excellent. Well, it's uh, you know, to, to, for for me, the poem is trying to it, it's it's do it's making that that move that you um, find in some scripture, some poetry, which is that um, is it possible that this horrible thing that I'm being put through that in fact God is subjecting me to is in fact something that is going to be purging. Um, that my chaff might fly, my grain lie sheer and clear. Is is that what this is about? Um, it doesn't necessarily make it hurt less, but um, I like that move in the sestet. You know, the octave sets up the "Why are you stomping on me, giant lion man?" Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sestet says, "Maybe there's a good reason. Maybe." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's just you're right. It's just a maybe. Well, it's, it's so many question marks. You know, you know, and whom am I cheering? Am I cheering for me? Am I cheering for him? Am I cheering for both? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I love it. I'll tell you what I like is it's called carrion comfort, and you get this like confusion over who is the carrion. Because mm-hmm. at first, the first line is not, I'll not carry in comfort despair, not feast on thee. So mm-hmm. there. Hopkins is the vulture, and and his own mm-hmm. despair is the carrion, which, I mean, for those of you who have been seriously depressed, you, you probably know exactly what he's talking about. At a certain point, it becomes uh, kind of a sick sort of pleasure to, to, to feel despair in that way. But then later on, he's the one who's the, the corpse, who's, who's in danger mm-hmm. of being eaten by despair. So first, despair feasts on you, and then you feast on the memory of your despair. 
you know, I didn't see him as a vulture. I was seeing him as a cannibal. Hmm. I, I was imagining this as a as one of those kind of, you know, desperation situations in which you're like, there is nothing left for me to eat except the dead guy over there. But as soon as I do, I will have surrendered something essential about myself. Oh, interesting. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's it. But anyway. Paul means whatever you want it to mean, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's about happy dragonflies glistening over a lovely may, uh, you know, glistening is not time. a verb. I guess it is in uh, in Hoffman's world. Let's move on <laughs> yeah. to uh, no worst. There is none. David, uh, yeah. what, what do you make of this one? Um, uh, the, the, well, this this is the one where I get to make the spinal tap joke. Um, no worst. There is none. Pitched past pitch of grief. Um, that, that first little bit there pitched past pitch of grief. He's using pitch in two senses, um, pitched something that's angled up, but also pitch as a noun used to be like the highest level of something. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so his grief is being pitched higher than the highest level. So, you know, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, grief, um, on 11. Oh, I see. This yes, grief goes up to 11. P- yes. Pitch yes. is also, <laughs> isn't pitch also a British name for like a field, like a soccer field, mm-hmm. a football pitch. You, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of definitions. Um, I hung out with the OED a lot last night. <laughs> <laughs> so normal Monday night for you. Yeah. Normal Monday night for me. Um, I, I was taking this as the there's this highest level. This is going past it. Um, no worse. There is none. Um, more pangs will schooled at four pangs. Wilder rings. Uh, wilder ring. And that's again that, that ring with the W. Like, mm-hmm. like, like the initial pains that I had, that was just the pain practicing, man. <laughs> Those were just the four pangs. It was just getting warmed up. That was that was pain school. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's going to get worse. But then um, he t- it turns to like a psalm, um, like uh, like Psalm twenty two that you brought up, Nathan. Comforter, comforter, where where is your comforting, Mary, mother of us? Where is your relief? So he calls first, I think, on the Holy Spirit, um, the Paraclete, the Comforter. Um, you know, that's, that's in the name of the Holy Spirit right there that Jesus gives it in John. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mary, mother of us, Mary is, uh, is, uh, often seen as a figure, uh, directly of consolation. Um, it's Mary who sends, oh gosh, it's Mary who sends Lucy, who sends Beatrice, who sends Don, who sends Virgil to Don. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what a bureaucracy. Yeah, well, but it's you know it's 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 this kind of chain of love reaching down, and Mary and Mary is this is this image of of um, divine uh, divine comfort kind of working down through mediate means. Um, but you, you have that absent God here, and he, the absent God fails to yeah. show up in several of the poems in this sequence. Yeah, the Comforter, the Imminent God. Um, the the god the the indwelling god the comforter seems not there with his comfort mary <laughs> when he the, is there it's even worse because he wrestles with you <laughs> yeah so um yeah it's 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 very much um very very much kind of an, an a feeling a feeling of an absence of of god um my cries heave herds long it's like you know he's not like one sadly bleeding sheep he's like this whole line of bleeding sheep um Huddle in a main, a chief woe, world sorrow. What? Um, <laughs> I'm going to take the word main to mean like a continent, so that I'm playing off of the idea of world sorrow, so that his cries are kind of clustering together so that they become their own continent and then swell up to become their own world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um. The Sestet. Oh, the mind, mine has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. 
hold them cheap, uh, hold them cheap, May, who ne'er hung there. Well, you can you can dismiss these cliffs inside the mind um, if you've never hung off one of them. <laughs> uh, nor does long or small durance deal with that steep or deep. Um, our durance, our endurance, uh, we, we can't deal with that for very long. And then that weird ending to the poem. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort, serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he said that. Uh, this is a super weird line, because, you know, like so many of them, I wish that he had quotation marks before, here, and after comfort. Um, as if someone's saying, here, wretch, creep under a comfort. Oh, Sir. that serves in a whirlwind. Okay. That's, that serves in a whirlwind. I think there's like, a missing that. That's how creep I read it as well, under Michael. A comfort, that serves in a whirlwind. Like, it's not much comfort, but when you're in the middle of the whirlwind, this is this right. is, uh, this is is what you're going to get. Another yeah. Job image. Right, which means the absent God may not be as absent as you imagine him to be, but you may well, wish he was more absent. Except that I take the what comes after the colon as the comfort that serves. Agreed. The, creep uh, creep uh, under the comfort of death ends in life and each day dies with sleep. That's right, which is not comfort, but it'll do. Because <laughs> there's a tornado out, y'all. The, the, the poem's a cycle, right? You, you have this, mm-hmm. on an age old anvil, wince and sing, then lull, then leave off. So you have this, Hopkins is always interested in cycles. There, there, there are cycles in three of his probably four most famous poems. God, God's Grandeur has a cycle to match mm-hmm. the one in, in Dover Beach. Spring and Fall is, of course, a cycle. And then Thou Art Indeed Just, which I think comes after the Terrible Sonnets, is also mm-hmm. a cycle. Here you've got the cycle, and, and that last line, Life, doth, life Death, doth, Does End. Excuse me, I can't even say it. <laughs> life, Death, Does End is the end of the cycle, except not really, right? Because he says, each day dies with sleep. But if each day dies with sleep, mm-hmm. that means you're going to have another cycle um, mm-hmm. You know, I have a bipolar disorder, so I'm very interested in cycles of despair. <laughs> but uh, I, I, that comfort makes sense to me. That, that like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I'm not going to be suffering when I go to sleep, at least. And maybe I won't yeah. wake up. This won't go forever kind of thing. It's pretty bleak, though. I mean, that's as he says, that, that comfort serves in a whirlwind. Yeah, mm-hmm. which itself, of course, is a cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I mean, carrying comfort it, it at least offers the possibility of some kind of gracious purpose behind the pain um, that might be there with question marks. This one, nothing. Just just the absence of the comforter. Not even Mary showed up. So, Nathan, anything to add to that one? No, I mean, I I think we pretty much got that one. I mean, you know, I, like I said before, I think that, uh, you know, under a comfort, which or that serves in a whirlwind is kind of how mm-hmm. I read that. Uh, you know, the the comfort is not a hope for a better state of things, but for a state of not being, whether that be sleep or death. Mm. Okay, well, yeah. let's move on then to uh, to seem the stranger lies my lot, which seems to me to be the one most directly referencing his sojourn, his exile in Ireland. Am I way off there, Nathan? No, I mean that's certainly how I read it. I mean, this is a poem that makes reference to his uh, journey into the Catholic Church, his journey to Ireland, his journey into the priesthood. You know, he refers to. Uh, the journey to Ireland as the third remove. Um, and once again, I mean, you know, it's this paradox that he's playing with, you know, it's, uh, the only love that he has any hope of getting is in this abandonment of what he loves. Uh, Mm. so, you know, to, to read the, the last passage or towards the, towards the end of the poem here, only what word wisest my heart breeds dark heavens, baffling band bars, or hell's spell thwarts. So, you know, the, uh, the only time that, you know, he has any real hope of hope 
is when, you know, the fires of hell are keeping him from anything that he actually enjoys. Um, again, I mean, there's a reason, I suppose, that uh, these get called the terrible sonnets, because, uh, you know, as with the last poem, with, uh, you know, No Worse There Is None, uh, the only comfort that is available is that, you know, once the actual comfort is gone... Uh, well, at least then you're not hoping for any comfort. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. and really, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the first eight lines, I mean, are largely a, a narration of it as I read it of his, you know, departure first from the faith of his family and then from, you know, the secular or no, I guess into the secular clergy. Uh, and then, you know, from the place where he, grew up so i mean you know the that part you know i thought was fairly straightforward i mean you know david i what what else in this one i mean warrants some more comment Mm. um the father and mother dear brothers and sisters are in christ not near so Mm -hmm. his his family um dear to him but not as he sees it in Christ, they're not near to him in Christ and he, Mm -hmm. my peace, my parting sword and strife. And you know, there we have that, you know, that echo of Christ saying that he's not come to bring peace, but a sword and anyone who doesn't, um, hate father and mother and sister and brother and, you know, wife and child and, you know, is not worthy of him. Um, Right. And that, it, it seems that that Hopkins feels like that that's the choice that was presented to him. They're still still dear to him, but he's 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 cut off um, in a way that he he feels Christ is responsible for. Um, mm-hmm. He 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 isn't making his family villains. Um, is is I think um, what's important here. Um, right, and moreover, he's not begging to come back either in the in the next part of the octave. You know, um, mm-hmm. I don't think England would hear me if I plead if I pled to come back, but I'm not going to plead anyway. Right, that's his lot. Right, mm-hmm. to be a stranger is his lot. Yeah, to seem a stranger. That's what, anyway. what do you guys make of uh, the line break between seven and eight, where he splits weary? Over the two lines, <laughs> I know that if a student did that in a poem he turned into me, I would uh, I would raise my eyebrow. But Hopkins has maybe earned the benefit of the doubt. Is he up to something there, or is it just a cheat? <laughs> I I at this point I was just reading it as a cheat. I <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I'll I'll grant that that is probably a function of my weariness more than a, of any careful reading. Hmm. Well, especially since if you do read it aloud and haven't and your eye hasn't flickered to the beginning of the next line, you're gonna misread the word so that the rhyme breaks. Ah, okay. Um Yeah, you'll say if, where and not we're. Right. I, I don't know if, if that me I, I, I don't know what to make of that quite yet, but the fact that you would um that your 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 first reaction would be to to mishear and so misread him. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I don't know if uh, I don't know if he's if he's if he's working with that intentionally or if he's just cheating. That um, that may be a function of our accent, though. Yeah, that's kind of what I was suspicious oh, of. But you know, fair enough. The, w- the way that in Shakespeare, uh, R O M E is homophonous with R O O M. You know, yeah. as it's played out in Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra and so on and so forth. But here's a mm-hmm. thought. I'm not a I'm not a, a dialect expert, so if there is somebody who knows more than I do about the dialects of the British Isles in the nineteenth century, weary sounding more like wary sounds to me like an Irish accent, not like an English one. Hmm. And okay. since since we're dealing with an English Englishman who is very uncomfortably stuck in Ireland, I wonder I wonder if maybe that is what he's up to. Hmm. I don't know if we have anybody listening who knows that sort of stuff. But if you do, please write us and let me know. By all means. Well, David, let's uh, let's move on to another cyclic poem of, of a sort. Uh, I wake and feel the fell of dark. So I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. Uh, 
first you, you just take it literally. Um, I woke up and it wasn't daytime yet. <laughs> um, what hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. Uh, so it's, it's the experience of waking up, um, waking up to darkness, not to light, and then not being able to fall asleep and that, um, that strange time dilation that comes in those dark hours um, when sleep is denied. Um, I know that feeling. Um, you lie there and it feels like you've been there all night and you roll over and it's been five minutes. Um, or you roll over and it's been two hours. And yeah, the darkness does weird things. Um, what size you heart saw, ways that you went, and more must and yet longer lights, uh, yet longer lights delay. Um, I've been here for so long uh, in the dark, and I'll be here for a long time yet. Um, a very, uh, you know, a very dark, very depressing kind of image. Um, with witness, I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years. I mean, uh, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. So it's the the cries in the night that are like dead letters, which you know I immediately go to Bartleby the Scrivener, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and and imagine you know this. Uh, this cubby with, I guess, God pasted over the top of it, and it's just, you know, stuffed chock full of uh, little um, little envelopes with G. Hopkins up in the return address corner. I, you um, know, I, I should I should point out, and and I'm, I'm hesitant to do so, but I feel like if I don't, I'll be leaving mm-hmm. out something important. I think a lot of critics take that reference to dead letters to suggest. Um, these unanswered letters he sent to this guy, Digby Dolben, whom he may have had some sort of sexual attraction to, you know, mm. uh, who, who knows. But he did have this very close relationship with this guy, Digby Dolben, which broke off and he kept writing to him and never heard anything back. Mm. Yeah, that, you know, we, it, okay. I, I wasn't aware of a b- possible biographical reading, but the other the other works well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um because among other things, I read this as uh, again in the context of lament psalms. Um, I don't know exactly what um, life is like when you are a Jesuit in training. I don't know if they observe the canonical hours um, the way monks do. But but even so, um, you know, in in the liturgy of the mass, uh, in uh, in whatever uh, whatever kind of liturgies were shaping uh, his life as he was in training, um, he would have just been immersed in lament psalms, um, as, as we've been pointing to. And uh, among those, the idea of, I wake up in the night, and I cry out in the night, and you don't hear me, why aren't you listening? You know, these are lament psalm um, mm-hmm. sentiments. So, you know, I, I, I could, you know... I, I can also easily. Uh, Hopkins seems like the kind of guy who would take this biographical fact and then channel it into this this other register as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, no, absolutely. And I, I don't mean I don't mean for that to to like usurp the other. I think they're probably mm-hmm. if it is indeed a reference to Dolben. I think they're probably working simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, th- what's interesting is. That the 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 sestet to me turns from uh, turns from what I think is 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 more simple lament into something that's more like the penitential psalms. He says, "I am gall, I am heartburn. God's most deep decree, bitter would have me taste." Um, so God's decree is uh, God's uh, God's deep decree would have me taste bitter, would have me taste bitterness, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But my taste was, or is God gnawing on him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> that, that yeah, I mean, I'm, well, no, no, no. I'm really asking because this is another one of those places where you see bitter, and you know, again, I imagine this is a function of American English, but I see an adjective, right? So uh, I think, okay, I'm the you know uh, greasy meal that gave God heartburn. 
Ah, okay. But but okay. then, I mean, you're right. I mean, if you read it as a substantive adjective, bitter would have me taste. I mean, I have to taste bitter things. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's, well, but he so, says he says my taste was me. Yeah, what I'm mm-hmm. tasting is me. Bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed. The curse. I thought of Milton uh, Satan. I myself am hell. Mm. Well, it made me think of uh, of the of the of the penitential psalms, where the psalmist talks about how his bones burn and melt within him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's described as kind of feverish as he's racked with conscience on his bed, um, things like that. Uh, self yeast of spirit, a dull dough sours. Um, I, I'm just swollen up with this grossness of myself. Um, I see the lost are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am, and they're scourged to be as I am mine. They're sweating selves, but worse. So I, I, maybe that does get back to that 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 Milton idea. I am I am hell. Um, it's mm-hmm. also very Dantean. It's that contrapasso yeah. you find in the Inferno, where the the damned have become their sin. Yes. Right, right. And just being with themselves forever is. Uh, is the punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But he can still, at the in the last two words, he can still imagine the possibility that there's a worse than this. <laughs> Again, cold comfort, but it's something to crawl under. Oh, and see, I read that as the lost have it bad, but I have it worse. I think, oh. that, I think that's an ambiguity to the poem. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I read it the other at, way around. At least the lost have their ignorance, right? They don't know that they're lost, but I know exactly my status, and that makes it worse. Interesting. Interesting. That 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 hadn't occurred to me. I'm looking at the clock, and we need to uh, we need to finish up with these last two before too long. So uh, rather than uh, it, obviously, we could probably have done a full episode on each of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's move on to patience. Hard thing. All right. Uh, just one quick nod back to, uh, I wake and feel the fell of dark. I, I was so tired by the time I got to this one, David, that I actually read the line as selfiest of spirit. I thought, <laughs> ah, that, how modern a sentiment. <laughs> but at any rate, let's, let's do patience hard thing. Um, and by the way, I want to point out that I understand the irony that I said, let's hurry up and do patience. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Um, this one, oddly enough, I read as one of the more hopeful of this sequence. Uh, yeah, simply because I mean there is a there's something good at the core of it, even though it is painful and it is uh, you know wretched to get to it. At least there's something rather than nothing at the end, and that something is patience. Uh, and again, you know the. The strong images and the grammatical ambiguities are there. Um, we hear our hearts grate on themselves. It kills to bruise, bruise them dearer. Um, so again, you know, uh, to bruise is an act of violence, and yet it is a dear bruising. Uh, to kill is certainly an act of violence, and yet this is what gives a certain kind of life, right? Um, yet the rebellious wills of us, we do... <laughs> Yet the rebellious wills of us, we do bid God <laughs> bend to him, even so. This is the difficulty of reading these boogers out loud that Michael was talking about earlier, uh, because you, you don't know where to put the accent. Um, but, once again, uh, at the end of this poem, you actually get to something rather than nothing. Patience fills his crisp combs, and that comes those ways we know. So at the very least, I mean, this is a poem where, you know, there is a virtue, there is something of God waiting for you, uh, even as, you know, it is only through war and wounds and weariness and toil and death and bruising that you get to it. Uh, for whatever reason, Michael, I, you know, I, I, I left this one at least, you know, marginally happier than I was with the first couple. Where No, 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 you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you, you go through everything and, you know, you're in hell and God, you know, swats you with his lion paw. And then, you know, your consolation at the end is at least you get to die. <laughs> well, I mean, if if I wake and feel the fell of dark ends with this image of Dante's hell, this one ends with an image of Dante's purgatory. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're still suffering, but now your suffering is pushing you in a direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like now you're becoming like God. You're developing this virtue, the mm-hmm. most unpleasant of all virtues. Well, through through patience, you're developing kindness, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know, which is which is lovely. Uh, that that image of uh, of ivy um, in the the sort of the the, the second half of the octave. Um, mm-hmm. Natural hearts, ivy, patience masks are ruins of wrecked past purpose. Um, that's that's kind of interesting because I'm 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 a more than a little bit in love with the idea of ruins covered by ivy and making this kind of picturesque thing, which seeing a house knocked down. <laughs> that's a trauma and then the ivy comes and makes of it something else mm-hmm. and uh, it's a decidedly secular version in the Augustinian sense there because mm-hmm. uh, to mask ruins is not something that will be necessary in the kingdom to come but mm-hmm. while we live in this world uh, ultimately an ivy covered picturesque ruin is better than a smoking twisted frame of a dwelling that you still remember yeah yeah. Hopefully there still will be ruins, though, because otherwise Francis Schaeffer is going to be very disappointed. <laughs> Do you ever see that video where he says, these are some of my favorite ruins north of the Alps? No, I can't say that I have. It's one of no? the greatest sentences in evangelical history. These are some of my favorite ruins north of the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the, the last one, at least in, in the cycle I have here, is my own heart let me more have pity on. Frederick Buechner calls this the least terrible of the terrible sonnets. <laughs> David, do you agree with him? Uh, yeah, no, this one's, this one is actually lovely. Um, this is, this poem is, is the, the one that, um, I hope anyone inclined to be to, towards a kind of morose introspection towards a kind of, um, uh, almost kind of self-abusing kind of uh kind of uh depression and and you know just kind of mulling on it uh you know gnawing on the carrying comfort um this is the poem where he says no man be nicer to you um (laughs) my own heart let me have more pity on let me live to my sad self hereafter kind charitable not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet. Um, you know, yeah, okay, I'm tormented, but stop like tormenting yourself because you're tormented. <laughs> well, it's a, it's another cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. Be be nice to you. Um, you know, be yeah, you still to each other, <laughs> and even to yourselves. Um it's it's kind of like that but it's but i but i think it's more it's it's saying something more 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 important than that um uh, he he has this image of himself um uh, groping around blindly for comfort but you know why would i look um why would i look in myself for the resources for comfort which i'm already not capable of finding and so this this kind of remaining in myself is only tormenting me further. Um, I'm like a I'm like a a blind person, um, you know, a blind person, uh, blind eyes in their dark cannot day. <laughs> um, in in the same way, I cannot by just sort of hanging out inside of myself, um, groping round my comfortless. I cannot uh, I can't get comfort. So, soul, self, come poor Jack Self. Uh, I love Jack Self. <laughs> I do advise you, jaded, let be. Call off thoughts a while elsewhere. Leave comfort root room. You know, stop being so morose, so sunk into um, into this dark place that you're evening imagining the ways in which comfort can't come. Right, you're you're imagining, and and this is me. 
right? As soon as something goes wrong, I immediately start thinking about how they can go wronger. <laughs> um, leave comfort root room. Let joy size at God knows when to God knows what. You know, you might not know what that joy is going to look like. You can't possibly imagine it, but leave the possibility that it might be there. Um, so in other words, if your landlord says the rent is late and he might oh have to litigate, heavens. don't worry, <laughs> be happy. Uh, is that what you're saying, David? I think it's maybe saying something a little more a little more profound than don't worry, be happy. Um, but, but that's, uh, that's on the, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a gesture in that direction perhaps. <laughs> um, and then we get to this crazy, crazy tale in the last, last few lines whose smiles not rung see you. <laughs> um, so I guess see see the one whose smile is not yet wrung from them. You know, leave yourself the capacity to actually see cheerfulness outside of you. I, is how I read that. I don't know. There's that word wrung uh, again, by the way. Yes, he, he loves, loves that, that word. word. Loves it. <laughs> Unforeseen times, rather, as skies between pie mountains <laughs> light a lovely mile. <laughs> between pie, one word. Did you, yeah. you guys, did you guys look up between pie? Oh, is that not a word he invented? Yeah, it's a word he invented. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, yeah, there's no, there's no between pie. <laughs> um, so I looked up pie. Um, and then you had to take a break to go eat pie. To go mm-hmm. eat pie. Um, so I read a couple things. One saying, "Oh, he's taking the word pied, which he loves." Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. pied beauty is his other really pied famous. Pied beauty, yeah. yeah. And he's treating the word pied as if it is an adjective built on a past tense of a verb to pie. (laughs) So that the skies are pieing between the mountains. And how does something pie? Well, it pies as something is pied. It, It becomes very colored. So, so he's kind of seeing these looming mountains, but between, between the ridges of the mountains, he sees this, gorgeous very colored landscape or a uh, uh, sun sunset or something or sunrise maybe was more hopeful mm-hmm. maybe that's between pie um a, a one that i found in the oed uh to to pie uh, is a, a, a there's a dialect word in england which was it was uh in 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 his period before and after which means to heap earth on top of something especially in gardening to like build a mound of dirt over something so that you would pie your potatoes Hmm. right you put the potato in the ground and then you heap earth over it um so maybe the sky is kind of piled up between the mountains like like mountains are now becoming things that are being fertilized under this happy sky instead of just looming awful things I don't know. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins for you, though. He's <laughs> he's he's just he's just going to make stuff up, and he's not going to be helpful to us, Elliot, and annotate it. Of course, Elliot's <laughs> annotations are only kind of helpful. Yeah, Fair at enough. best. <laughs> <laughs> his, his, his annotations are. See, don't you wish you were smart like me? Mm-hmm. Anything to add to my own heart, uh, Nathan? <laughs> or the point? Uh, I mean, Oh, only that, you know, by this point, I was just delighting in the fact that uh, a line begins with apostrophe S. I said, okay, at this point, why not? <laughs> well, and if you say it, it's snot. Snot yeah. rung. Uh, who, who smiles, snot rung. <laughs> I think toddlers have snot rung smiles. <laughs> you would know, man. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, hopefully our uh, discussion here has encouraged you to go read these terrible sonnets of Hopkins and his less terrible uh, poems. <laughs> David, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, uh, I I thought we would go uh, go back to a request that came in last year that we talk about Jurassic Park, and that and I thought, you know what, I'd like to hang out with some dinosaurs for a while, and Jeff Goldblum. 
Just the movie, so. right? You're not you're not wanting us to read the Crichton novel. Uh, no, the movie. Michael Crichton. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just we're just gonna do the movie. We're gonna do the Jurassic Park that people know. Well, until next week, you can uh, get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. We're also on Facebook. Uh, Nathan, don't we have a Twitter account? Uh, kind of. All yeah. three of us have Twitter <laughs> accounts that I'm sure you can find yes. if you search for our names. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Till next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.